Gillian Kilby. Welcome to the program. Thanks, Justin. Great to be here. Well, let's begin with your academic background. Take us through your formal degrees. Well, there's formal and informal degrees. I mean, I grew up on a farm, so that's essentially a whole education process in itself. And then I have <laughs> I have an MBA from Stanford University. I did a Master's of Public Policy there as well. And my base degree is a Bachelor of Civil Engineering from Sydney University. Let's go through your first degree, your civil engineering degree. What made you interested in that? I was one of those people who read the entire book about university degrees for every university in Australia, and I crossed out everything I did not want to do. Engineering and architecture were the two last things. It felt like this is something where you can create, you can be part of conversations and build infrastructure that lasts over 100 years. But I didn't think I could be an architect and have a meaningful career back in regional Australia one day. So I chose engineering. Within six months of being at Sydney University, I watched so many of my friends change courses and work out what they wanted to do. And I just knew within six months that this was for me. I really encourage anyone who's at that moment of trying to choose a degree not to sweat it. The choice of a degree is important, but you have a second choice within a couple of months of starting at university where you can switch courses. And for me, I fell into the right degree the first time, but I watched a lot of people make changes and those changes turned out okay. So once you left university and you've got this fresh degree in your hand, what happened then? Well, I figured if one day I would move back to regional New South Wales, I will take the best job I can find. So I ended up working for Waterway Constructions. It's a maritime construction company. My construction site was Sydney Harbour. You could throw a rock and hit the Harbour Bridge from the construction site. And the reason I chose to work there was I met with the director when I was writing my thesis and he just had this way of operating you know, they used to call him the last gentleman of the construction industry. And I chose to work for that company to be part of his organisation. And I think people work for people, not for companies. And people leave uh, bosses, not, not jobs. And I had an incredible four years there in a team of uh, 120 people. The company grew very quickly. And you know, I was one of very few women on the construction sites and I was so well looked after. I had such a great culture at that company. Wild horses couldn't have dragged me away, but after four years, I had this boyfriend and he said, do you want to move out to the country? So I left and I, I moved to Walgut. It's nine and a half hours northwest of Sydney uh, on a 50,000 acre farm. And I, within two weeks of being out there, you know, there weren't any job opportunities. So I started my own business. And tell us about that. I think when you start your own business, you expect, you know, the, the theatre curtains to rise and the spotlight to be there and the audience to clap. But when you start a business, you actually just get, you know, shoved out onto the stage in an empty auditorium. Uh, there's no one there. There's no lights. Starting a business is really easy. Making money is really hard. So I started the business and a few local councils nearby engaged me to do some contract engineering work. And I just fell in love with the opportunity to work locally, to work for local government where everyone in public service is so passionate about the quality of the roads they're building, the quality of the water and wastewater treatment assets. 
So I had a really uh, wonderful opportunity to work across regional New South Wales. And within four years, I was working for over 54 councils. I pulled together $3 billion worth of road projects. And those projects went to the Minister for Roads at the time um, for, you know, the next two decades worth of roads that we need funding for out here. So it was a really important body of work that I got to be a part of. I would have never had that opportunity had I been based in a capital city working for a big firm. So what are some of the key things that you think that you've taken with you or learnt as a result of starting that business from scratch in the bush? I think I really value education and I truly do put it back to my formal and informal education that I was able to do that. And by informal education, I mean the conversations you have at at dinner with people you call your one-off mentors, with people who play a a longer role as a mentor. Um, And then the more formal education where just as you start running the company, you start to engage with formal company director education or you sit down with your accountant and rather than just engaging your accountant to do specific tasks, you have that accountant teach you certain steps of the process. So I consider myself a lifelong learner and my mother's very similar. And that education is what got me, I believe, where I wanted to go. So after four years running my business in regional New South Wales, when I wanted to be operating at a much higher place in the infrastructure ecosystem, you know, I'm boots on the ground. I'm out in Gadooga making sure an Indigenous community has a community hall and a bowling green and they don't have a supermarket and we worked on plans to build a supermarket. When you're making that sort of impact, you are boots on the ground. But someone in Sydney behind closed doors or in Canberra is making decisions and you're not at the table. I felt very passionately about this. And when I made the decision to leave regional New South Wales, to leave my business and to leave my position within infrastructure, it would only happen for something much greater. And that's where the Australian Monash Foundation stepped in. It's very hard to imagine someone on a farm in regional New South Wales could be picked up by the Australian Monash Foundation um, and given the opportunity to go to uh, Stanford University in California. But that was my trajectory and it's very different to many people out here. So tell us about that. You are a John Monash Foundation scholar. When did you apply and Talk us through that process. The process of applying is amazing. And I say to people who ring me when they're in the application process, I said, success is not winning the scholarship. Success is the clarity you get in the application process. And the application process is is huge. You are writing about why you want to make a really important change in your life. And that change is to uproot your family, um, finish up at your current roles, and head off overseas for an immersive experience at one of the top universities in the world. When you get that opportunity, you have to be 100% in it and you have to be able to prove that this step is critical for you to come back and be one of Australia's next leaders, for you to make a difference, for you to make Australia great. And they're John Monash's words. Education is given to one, to benefit many, to make Australia great. So the application process is so cathartic. I learned so much about myself in the process. I learned about why. I read back over my application process today and it is so true to my values and to what I have done uh, 
eight years after I wrote that application. Stanford and an MBA, what's it like studying at Stanford? It's incredible and I had no idea. When I applied to Stanford, I was round three. I took one of the last 10 spots in the program, which is is unique and special and uh, I really value the the fact I got that opportunity. But Stanford is incredible on so many dimensions. Stanford is where Google started. Stanford's down the road from Facebook and Apple. Stanford exists in an ecosystem where you are celebrated for being different as opposed to being the same. And when I went through the application process, I had my Monash Award and I applied to other universities. You know, I applied to Harvard and I didn't get in. I applied to MIT and I didn't get in. And in Australia, we know those two universities. And when the Monash Foundation rang me, they said, try Stanford. You're really going to like it there. And that was the year that Stanford became the number one MBA program in the US, beating Harvard. But when I got there on campus, you know, my first day in California is my first day on the Stanford campus. And you are sitting side by side with, you know, 40% of the, the people in your class are of international backgrounds. And you are one of a collection of unique individuals as opposed to one of a mass of of people studying. And I think that really suited me coming from a non-traditional background in my career um, and wanting to pursue a path that not many people have pursued before me, especially women in engineering. You were telling me off air that in your first week you were in contact with someone pretty special. That's right. You you spend uh, you spend all this time dreaming about what it's going to be like your first week in class, and you arrive and you're sitting in class, and Condoleezza Rice is your lecturer. It's very hard to explain how you can be sitting in regional New South Wales one week and the next week you're sitting in a classroom with Condoleezza Rice, and I just had tears in my eyes, and I don't know how many other people in my class were feeling that way that day, but you definitely feel special and you don't take the opportunity for granted. These are three years on a campus, on an educational institution that that values your brain, that values opportunity. And you're not just there to learn, you're there to be part of an ecosystem. You grow through every conversation you have. Uh, In the, the very first week I got taught that if you're sitting next to someone at Stanford and you can't work out how they got admitted, you're not digging deep enough. I said, everyone has a superpower. It's your responsibility to find it, to ask more questions and to find the joy in every person. And it's been a lifelong lesson that doesn't matter where I am in the world, if I'm standing next to someone and I haven't found their superpower, I just haven't asked enough questions. What's your superpower? Ooh, taking risks would be a superpower uh, and joining the dots. I'm very much a a big picture, excitable thinker, and I will spend my life six months ahead. And that can be both frustrating in a workplace, but it can also be really progressive. I love nothing more than sitting in a room talking strategy for six to 12 months from now. And I find it very difficult to do the the day-to-day. And that's why when my team comes around, I make sure the skill set is very complimentary. What was it like living and studying in Silicon Valley? I mean, it's so different. I remember the first day I looked on Google Maps and I thought I'd walk to the nearest 
super center and it was two miles away and let's just say two miles is not two kilometers <laughs> it's so much different you're surrounded by the most uh unique people with these incredible experiences i remember sitting at lunch one day with one of my classmates and he'd grown up in china he'd lived in lived in five different countries he spoke five languages and i thought gosh i always thought i wanted my kids to grow up on a farm but look at this guy, you know, he, he's exemplary. And, you know, how uh, we're so limited by the experiences we've had to date, whereas by collecting new experiences and meeting new people, we become a product of those experiences. I mean, I, I'd never been overseas before I was 25. So to have had this opportunity, I feel like there was a lot of growing going on very quickly. <laughs> But it was an incredible experience and I certainly don't take it for granted what I've been exposed to. And I think that knowing my trajectory is so different from other people in regional Australia and knowing that when I originally left to go overseas, you know, I was feeling pretty isolated. So in coming back to Australia, I really made a conscious choice. You know, how do you create an ecosystem in a regional area that provides the excitement and the stimulation and the sharing of knowledge here in Dubbo, not just um, have it based in Silicon Valley. And, and when I came back, one of my motivations was to create that. So Dubbo's home now, or you, do, you, do you split your time between regional Australia and, um, and the United States? That's right. I have to split my time. I have a wonderful project in California right now with one of the top tech firms over there looking at real estate and financing real estate. And I love working in diverse environments that open my eyes to new things, very experiential. And that's part of this informal education that I talk about. So I do spend a bit of time in the US. Obviously, now with COVID, everything is over Zoom, which suits me. I've really enjoyed the opportunity to stop and create content, sit at my desk every day, as opposed to be on planes and driving huge distances for meetings. And then I split my time between Dubbo, where I have an innovation hub that I own and operate, and I spend a lot of time in Sydney, Canberra, uh, just to look after clients and be part of their work and their projects. So I'll get to the hub in a sec, but I want to talk. So you finish your MBA, you come back to Australia, and I believe you set up infrastructure collaborative what what is that yeah so i spent two years after the mba setting up this company in america and it is an infrastructure advisory firm i was fortunate to work on the california high-speed rail um, and for a couple of companies over there and that's how i continue to operate and the infrastructure collaborative is essentially my boutique infrastructure advisory firm that allows me to parachute into projects uh Usually I parachute in for a short amount of time, three to six months, and I help people, local government, the private sector get shovel ready. So most people are focused on, you know, when you put the shovel in the ground and when you have that ribbon cutting ceremony, people are focused on the project as it comes to life. I focus on the project before it is shovel ready because I believe that's where projects need the most support. That's where you should be spending 80% of your time. And if you do a good job of planning, you won't have time overrun or budget creep. So for me, uh, operating in this pre-shovel-ready space 
is unique. It's a niche and it's um, an area that is commonly overlooked by bigger companies. So I work with a lot of local governments on getting their projects shovel ready. So have you done an option study? Have you done a business case? Feasibility study? Have you looked at concept designs and then gone to a more detailed design phase? Do you want to do that with the construction contractor or you, do you want to do that before they become involved? You can save a lot of money by doing really good planning work and that's why I'm passionate about, about this opportunity because there is only so much money to go around across infrastructure in Australia. So the more efficiently you can spend it, the more you have. And if regional areas are already at a disadvantage being safer political seats or up until recently, um, having less voters, we need to do better with the resources we have available to us out here. Do you think Australia is good at building infrastructure? I think Australia has incredibly talented people. And I remember walking into the state treasurer's office in California and it was like I had this Australian infrastructure halo. Australians are recognised for doing a really good job. Infrastructure Australia and Infrastructure New South Wales have incredible uh, body of work published that other organisations around the world could learn from. Um, we truly are an infrastructure first country and we do a very good job. However, is one of the most debated topics and we spend a lot of time criticising politicians and criticising the government. I almost feel, feel sorry for the government in that they don't get the credit they deserve. We're so quick to move on to the problem before celebrating what we have over here. We have an incredible country. We have an incredible place to live. We have good access to services and what we need to work on next is equal access. Now, you founded a co-working space in Dubbo called The Exchange. I'd like to know why you did that. Hmm, that's a good question. Why did I do it? So the exchange was secretly launched in 2017 when I set my sights on this beautiful old post office, the 133 years old, it's in the main street of Dubbo. It was owned by Telstra and it had been empty for about five years at that time. And I wanted the opportunity to create something that solved the problem I had eight years ago when I worked on that farm, when I put in the application for the Monash Foundation, like why did I see the need to leave regional Australia to seek education elsewhere? Well, because education benefits many people. But how does someone who's ingrained in regional Australia who cannot leave get access to education through, like through osmosis, through conversations with other people, through an environment, through an ecosystem, and in going to Silicon Valley, I saw how co-working spaces and venture studios and startup garages really helped people get, get started, get motivated, get scaling. So I wanted to create that back in Dubbo. And for me, it's about paying forward the education I was gifted by the Monash Foundation. So the combination of this beautiful space being available and being needed to be saved, that building needed to be saved. I wrote a letter to the CEO of Telstra and asking if I could purchase the asset and I got a response that day saying, sure, we're onto it. And I turned up for the first meeting with Telstra with all these numbers. You know, I've done two real estate classes at Stanford. I'm feeling like a real pro. And in that first meeting, 
all they wanted to talk about was values and your background and what you planned to do with that building. So they wanted to make sure the future custodian of a 133-year-old post office was going to take good care of it and was going to be a good future custodian. So I have a, a clock tower now. It has a it has a 140-year-old clock mechanism in it that was originally in a courthouse in Dubbo, was transferred into the post office, and I am the custodian of the town clock and the town bell. And I have Dubbo's most important, most beautiful landmark, and it's privately owned. I don't believe things like this should be in private ownership, but equally, I know my intentions are good. And this space from being a place of communication as a post office, a place of communication as a telephone exchange, is now a place of communication for business owners. It's a co-working space. It's an innovation hub. We provide opportunities for people to have professional office space below market rent for the day they need it. And what we found really interesting, which is different to what you might find in a city, in a city, people use co-working spaces because it's cheaper. In the country, people use co-working spaces because it provides them with community. If you run your own business, you don't get awkward birthday cake. You don't get people standing around awkwardly singing to you on your birthday because you're a one-man band. We had we had Melbourne Cup Day and with 24 hours notice, we sent an email to the community. Hey, we're all small business owners. We know you don't have a Melbourne Cup lunch to go to. We know you don't have a sweep organised, but we do. Come join us. 30 people turned up with 24 hours notice to be part of our Melbourne Cup lunch. And it's really important small business owners can become very isolated, especially in the regions. So that the opportunity to be able to provide space to bring them together, I don't have to be the educator. I don't have to be the centre of the community. This building is, this landmark, this icon. And we've done it all um, with community support and I do it all as a social impact organisation because I want to pay forward the education I was gifted. I bet it's a nice feeling seeing that collaboration taking place in front of you and seeing, hopefully, some of the businesses flourish. It's amazing. Just before COVID hit, we had one business owner double their revenue for the month. We had another business owner look to hire two new people. And we had one business owner quit their job. That was just before COVID hit. We're now coming out of COVID. We have more people in the space than pre-COVID we have those same business owners back and doing really well. And I believe this space will uh, speed up the recovery process for those people. We're also watching really great collaborations happen. So where one business owner would work alone and not be able to bid on bigger projects, they're now teaming up and therefore able to bid on bigger projects. Our businesses in our space are not just serving the local economy, they're doing projects back to Sydney and internationally. And that's really important. That's a change that we are increasing the earning capacity of people in Dubbo because they're now accessing a market with a higher willingness to pay for their services. What we've done and created, and it's not just me, I have the most incredible team. You know, I'm an engineer. Let's be honest, I'm a nerdy engineer. I have the most beautiful front of house team and everyone loves them. So I employ for my gaps. 
and uh, the way they care for the community, the cups of tea, you know, the the, the long chats now we're coming out of COVID and people are, are feeling um, unsettled and a lot of people are looking to work on their purpose-based projects. People want to do um, purpose-based work and this is how our big corporates will change in the next 10 years to attract and retain great talent you really have to show people what they are working to achieve. And so we've managed to attract the most wonderful team because they can see the difference we're making. And when someone walks into the building and says, oh, I'm here to start, I've got this idea, I'm not sure if it's silly, could could someone chat to me about it? Our, our job is to make sure they get in, get conversations with the right people who can help them along the way. We're not business consultants, we're community support. Yeah, that's fantastic. You've recently spoken in the media about how the working from home movement during COVID is probably going to lead to more people, and you've touched on it briefly, um, living regionally, telecommuting, working on projects that they really want to instead of the mad race for more money. How do you see workplaces both in the bush and in the city more broadly changing post-COVID? I really hope that we continue on this trajectory of change being employers saying we are remote first employers. So there's this, you know, the, the battle for great talent. How do you attract great talent? Well, Google and Facebook provide you with a, a bus to work. They provide you with free coffee. They'll do your laundry for you, your dry cleaning. They have doctors on campus. How in Australia do we attract great talent when society is shifting towards people wanting to be purpose-driven and people wanting to work remotely? Well, big companies will have to come out and say, I'm a remote-first employer. And what does that mean? That means if you work for a big corporate, you can set up in Dubbo. There are many flights a day, Dubbo, Sydney, post-COVID, and the future really should be, I should be able to tap my Opal card, jump on a plane, head to Sydney for the day and be home by 7pm. That's the future to me. And in, in fact, with the way technology is going, so many of those meetings should be virtual. And then that opens up a whole new conversation for communities like Dubbo and Narromine and Wellington, where you have affordable housing, you have wonderful smaller schools for children you have a 10 minute commute anywhere you want to go so all of a sudden you can focus on lifestyle as opposed to a life that is all accommodating commuting to work and home in a bigger congested city what's your advice for people who are thinking about studying again perhaps a second or even a, a third degree or fourth degree but they're, they're currently weighing up their options do you have any advice for them if I was thinking of studying again I wouldn't be thinking of it as study I'd be thinking of, of it as an experience I'd be thinking of it as an opportunity to grow to stop to listen to learn I wouldn't be thinking about the textbooks I'd be thinking about the conversations in classrooms and the experiences out of those classrooms. And I talk to potential Monash scholars who are in the application process and we talk about how their family will adapt to an overseas experience, 
how they'll all learn and grow and stretch, how they'll have time after school to be a family, to explore, to be tourists in a new country. And the decision to stop and study is not a decision to part study and part work. It has to be a decision to stop and engage in a formal and informal education process because to try and continue working while also trying to immerse yourself in a new country and a new degree is counterintuitive to what you are trying to achieve. When we first sat down at Stanford, the dean made a speech and he said, um, many of you will be looking at the numbers right now of how expensive this is and the debt you'll carry. He said, I guarantee you when you fill out the exit survey on your last day, you'll be ticking the box that you are no longer worried about the financial implications of this education, that you'll be thinking about the wealth and the value of experiences you've collected over this time. And I don't believe you can put a value on that. When I decided to increase the duration of my study from two years to three years, to go from an MBA to an MBA and an MPP, which is the public policy, so many of my classmates said, oh, you're taking an extra year. It's going to add cost. And my response to them was, you know, this is 1% of my life that I'm spending on one of the most incredible campuses in the world with the most incredible minds to have an extra year to stop, to explore, to think, to engage is so rare in our lives. And I always embark on a, a formal or informal education program every year. But that third year was pivotal for me because my classmates left and I had more time to be more introspective and more reflective. I remember taking this class. It was decision making and it was in the engineering school. So it was really technical. They wanted you to apply 36 quantitative decision making processes to building a nuclear power plant. And I said, would it be possible for me to use these 36 processes on my life? <laughs> and now you're going to say, you're not a real engineer, are you? And I wanted, I wanted the opportunity to apply these decision-making frameworks to what to do after school. And the lecturer approved it. And we used to sit down and have coffee together and talk through my answers to the questions. And my learning was it doesn't matter how many decision-making processes or frameworks you apply, the answer is in you, it's just blurred. And the frameworks we apply provide clarity. The application for the John Manash Foundation Scholarship is a decision-making process that brings you clarity in what you want for your life, for your work, for your family, um, and for your future. And so for me, if I went back and read my final essay for that project, it will be true today as it was then. We generally follow a, a set path on our internal compass. It's just getting clarity around what that is. Julian, it's been an absolute pleasure talking with you today. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Justin. It's been wonderful.